Tonight's reading, which is in Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. This is God's word. My name is Phil. I'm the associate minister here. And if you keep Malachi 3 open, we're going to work our way through it. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, we pray that you would help us, whether we're familiar with your word or very new to it, to uh, have sharp minds that would understand what you have to say. And would you give us discerning hearts to recognize your truth, that we might know more of the truth about you, the living God. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Malachi 3, we're at the end of our series in Malachi, working through this 4th century BC prophet to Israel. And Malachi 3, the final charge he brings against Israel, verse 13, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. It feels like honouring God gets you nowhere. Going about like mourners and wearing clothes of mourning. I think it's about the ceremonies that went along with being repentant for sin, saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I've been sinning. And by contrast, they say, well, the people who do that, the people who try to honour God, they've got nothing to show for it. Whereas those who disobey God, well, they're flourishing. And although they test God's patience with their behaviour, nothing ever happens. Their life is wonderful. 
And all of a sudden, the massive chasm that we imagine exists between us and the people of Malachi's day, I mean, they're they're in 4th century BC Israel, 2,400 years of history. We've gone from plowshares to iPhones. The cultural chasm between uh, an ancient agricultural theocracy and a modern secular democracy, this vast chasm we imagine exists between us and the original audience, and it shrinks to nothing. Because here is a conversation I have with people at church all the time. The gist is this. What on earth is the point of living as a Christian? I try to honour God and, and do what his word says, and got to be honest my life absolutely sucks at the moment and then I look around and I see people who call themselves Christians living well just however they want and everything's going great for them you know I see them with their lovely career and and their their husband and kids and looking all just they've got everything and I think what's the point in honoring God If you can disobey him and you get all the things that people want in this life and you honour him and you get nothing, what on earth is the point? It's not just a question Christians ask. I guess if if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, one of the fundamental questions, you you want to know, know, did Jesus rise from the dead? You also want to know, is is it wise to take on the label of Christian, to follow Jesus? I mean, is it really worth it to be thought of as a complete weirdo or, or even worse sometimes these days? Is it worth it? The people of Malachi's day say, I gain nothing from following Jesus faithfully. I'd say I'd be surprised if most of us here haven't felt that, even if we haven't said it out loud at some point. It's a sentiment that crops up repeatedly in the Bible. God's people seem to ask it again and again. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we find it in our hearts too. We're human. Jesus said, look, to follow me, Jesus said, means taking up your cross and denying yourself. That's a pretty hard thing to do day after day after day after day after day. And so we're tempted to ask, is it really worth it? There'll be different issues that cause us to ask that question won't be the same issue, the same burning concern or sense of injustice and unfairness in each of our lives. But most of us ask that at some point. It's interesting, as understandable, as relatable and as universal as the question is, God responds in quite a, it's a bit of a smackdown here actually. Verse 13, you've spoken arrogantly against me, is how God introduces it. Now, God doesn't always say that when his people raise the injustice of life to him. Lots of other times in the Bible, like in Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, when the people say, God, it looks kind of like your people suffer and people who ignore you or hate you or disobey you do really well. What do I do with that? God answers graciously. But here, God says the people of Malachi's day are speaking arrogantly when they question him about this. Now, why does he say that? I think the thing is that sometimes, sometimes when we say, it just doesn't feel worth the sacrifices to follow you, God. Sometimes when we say it, what lies behind that question is the assumption, and God, you do realise you exist to serve me, don't you? (laughs) You, 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 
you have worked out that your role in the governance of this universe is to make my life comfortable and easy. You do realise that, don't you, God? You owe me, you know, for being me. The reality is, of course, God is God. I'm not. I'm a creature. And his role is not to serve me. Now, as I say, don't mishear me. That's not always the case. And God doesn't always um, talk of arrogance amongst those who complain that life feels unfair. But it is a warning to me to be careful that I don't drift into thinking that the awesome God who created the whole cosmos, the Lord, the King, the Judge, exists actually as my personal genie. The people, they challenge God. Malachi's people, they say, serving you gains us nothing. Sinning is what brings blessing. So how does God respond? Verse 16, God says, I will treasure those who serve me and I will judge the wicked. So not everybody in Malachi's day gives up. Verse 16, those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. Immediately you see the people who are complaining against God may have got it wrong because God does hear, God does listen, God does care. Now, we don't know what exactly the scroll of remembrance was. You, you read something similar uh, a little bit earlier, a few hundred years earlier, when the exiles come back from Babylon, from exile, under Ezra and Nehemiah. And Malachi's scroll, it, it seems to be some sort of public declaration by those who want to honour God. They say, look, every, it seems like people are either giving in or giving up completely, and people are compromising. And so... We just want to say, no, we're going to stand for you, God. And it's a way of those people standing together so that they can stand firm and publicly say, no, we're not going to give in. We're not going to give up. We're going to honour you, Lord God. And sometimes when you are in a culture where there's times of great spiritual confusion and sinful compromise in the church, you need the encouragement of, of being able to stand together with those who are not going to compromise. And God does more than just listen to those who commit themselves to him. He promises, in verse 17 and 18, that the day will soon come when they will realise you're not a fool for trusting in him. So verse 17, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Now, there's a huge amount you could say here. He's picking up all sorts of language from earlier in the Bible. But the big thing to to recognise, in particular, with what he says about treasured possession, which is the language used when he rescued the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt, is the verb tenses. That's the thing to see. There's nothing as exciting as grammar. But the grammar matters here. He says, those who commit themselves to God are his treasured possession something he delights in, that he protects, that he looks after and loves. The the first thing he'll grab if there's a fire in the house to to rescue it, the last thing he would ever give up. But, But those things won't be seen yet. They're not just like a child to him. They're like a child who's loving and and obedient. I mean, you know, no parent will admit to it, but you can, you might be possible to love a child even more when they're being nice 
And he said, look, I, I love these people, not just like a child, but like a loving, obedient child, the best child. Of course, you don't have favorites, but like the best child. But that won't be seen yet. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them. You will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. In other words, don't be surprised if right now you can't see the difference. Don't be surprised if right now it's just not clear who God loves and who God doesn't. Look, in the last month, I've visited three faithful, fabulous Christians. Uh, One, same age as me, and she's dying slowly, horribly of multiple sclerosis. Awful to see. The other was writhing in agony in hospital after a massive operation to remove cancer. And the third is waiting for test results to tell him uh, whether he's going to die very soon or he's got a, a few years left to live. Now, you look at the circumstances of their life. None of them look particularly like God's treasured possession. But God says, I know that, but one day they will. I have to say, nothing is more likely to kill your trust in God. Actually, if you want to give up as a Christian, let me tell you the easiest, quickest way to do it. If you'd really like, if you're a Christian here tonight and you think, I'd just like to give up completely and lose my faith, let me tell you how to do it very, very, very easily. All you've got to do is believe that if you honour Jesus, your life will be wonderful right now. If you do that, you'll find it tempting to give up pretty quickly when life doesn't fulfill that promise. But it's a promise God never makes. God's richest blessings will shower down on us for all eternity. But God says, it's not yet. They will. They will. They will. Now, before we move on, I should add that the categories of righteous and wicked that appear in in verse 17 and 18, as he talks about God making a distinction in verse 18 between the righteous and the wicked, those who, who serve God and those who don't. It's not those who are good enough to earn God's acceptance and those who are not very good. From the first page of the Bible to the last, It teaches, as Paul puts it, there is no one righteous, not even one. That's why we confess our sins every week as a church. The only way to be part of this category of righteous is to receive righteousness from God that he freely offers us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So righteous in passages like this is shorthand for those who commit themselves to God who trust in Jesus and receive forgiveness for sins and so are slowly being changed so their lives match their status. Righteousness is a gift from God. And so any of us can be part of that group, not by living perfectly, but by trusting in Jesus, who alone can give you righteousness. Thirdly, the day of the Lord will be a destructive furnace or a healing sunrise. So now really you get the question, okay, well, when is this going to happen? You say God's going to make a distinction and it will be worth following him. When will we feel that? When will this happen? And what exactly is it going to look like when God does make this great distinction? 
chapter 4, verse 1, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will see set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. God will act on the day of the Lord. This is a phrase that appears again and again in the, in the prophets, in, the, in those books of the Bible, and it refers to the day when God will come to judge evil and to rescue his people. On that day, it will be very clear that God makes a distinction as he judges and as he rescues. You will see him treat the wicked and the righteous differently. And his judgment of the wicked is described in words that are, well, I think they go beyond sobering. It's actually quite terrifying. God's coming will be a fire of judgment that burns like a furnace. In other words, nothing will be able to withstand it. You won't be able to bluff your way out of God's judgment. You can't just hope you catch God on a good day. No one can suck it up and take whatever punishment God thinks I deserve and then get on with it. No, this is complete destruction. Thinking, I'll be okay, I'll take my chances with God's judgment, is like hearing there is a forest fire coming and saying, you know what, it's all right, when the forest fire comes, well, just like I blew out the candles on my birthday cake, I'll, I'll blow it out. You don't blow out a forest fire. God cannot and God will not permit evil to bring the misery and destruction it has in this world into the eternal world that he's going to create. He will burn it up. And if we refuse to allow God to deal with the evil inside us in this life, then he must destroy us. I'd say there's a lot I love about being a minister. I get to spend my time with you lot. Um, I get to spend my time as well telling people about Jesus and and teaching his life-giving word. But there is one thing that I find harder than anything else. And that is taking cremation services for those who clearly rejected Jesus Christ. Knowing how often God warns that his judgment will be like a furnace, a fire. And at the end of the service, seeing the curtains part and the coffin go through to the flames. I just find it absolutely unbearable. It is just heartbreaking. And Jesus warns us repeatedly and passionately and very, very bluntly about Judgment Day because he is full of compassion and love and he does not want any of us, anyone, to be consumed by his judgment. In fact, he is so desperate that you are not consumed by his judgment that he came down and allowed us humans to torture him to death on the cross so that he could absorb the punishment of death that we deserve so that instead you could have life and forgiveness. And if you have not yet put your trust in Christ, then I I would not be a loving man if I did not implore you, please do not put it off a day longer turn to him and find forgiveness and safety from judgment. There's a very different image of what will happen if we do turn to follow Jesus. Verse 2. 
But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked and there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. I'm not sure I've ever knowingly seen a well-fed calf frolicking, but you get the picture. And I think we're probably a little bit uncomfortable with the image of the trampling on the wicked like ashes. The point is it's a reversal. No longer are the wicked oppressing the poor and the vulnerable, but they're now being crushed. Justice is being done. That's what it's saying. The first image is the key one. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, or in the old language, with healing in its wings. Interesting, it's another image of a blazing fire, the sun, but it's so different from the furnace of judgment. I mean, there is, as, as we Brits know, there is almost nothing as comforting and wonderful and as restorative as on the first sunny day after a cold, brutal, wet winter, when you step outside and you feel that sensation of the sun actually warming your face. And, and your body just relaxing. It's so wonderful. It's just a delicious sensation that you only get if you've earned it through a cold winter. But my goodness, it's worth it. And the healing spoken of here, it's more than just the vitamin D you get from the sunlight. It's, it's pointing to the rising of the Son of God. When Jesus rose from the dead, he released the power of God to reverse the sin and the curse and even the death that ruins this creation. Everything that causes misery and tears will be undone and healed when Jesus returns to this world. That is the healing that he brings in his rays. Okay, so what should we do? Well, cling to Jesus and look to his resurrection, very simply. Cling to Jesus and look to his resurrection. Now, that might seem an odd summary of the last two verses because uh, the more observant readers will have noticed they never mention Jesus or resurrection. But actually, that's what they're pointing to. Uh, let's look briefly at them. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. That's the first command. It says, look, in the light of the coming of the Lord, remember the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses was the law God gave to his people at Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments is the heart of it. Now, we are not Israelites at Mount Sinai. And that law always pointed to and was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, the people of God had the law and they related to God by obeying the law. And when they disobeyed, they were punished. Jesus has fulfilled the law. He's obeyed it perfectly. And we now relate to God, not by obeying the law, and hoping we've done enough and having to sacrifice when we fail. We relate to God through Jesus, who has kept the law on our behalf. And so the equivalent for us of keep the law of Moses is keep trusting in Jesus Christ, for he is the one who brings you to God. And the second command they're given is to look for Elijah, the other great figure of the Old Testament. If Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Uh, the prophets who call God's people back to him. Verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Malachi says, look, the return of Elijah will be the sign 
that the day of the Lord has arrived. The first great prophet, when he reappears, then you'll know the day of the Lord has come. And the New Testament of the Bible begins with the appearance, not of Jesus, but of a prophet who looks very much like Elijah, pointing to Jesus. Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus himself says, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. So the day of the Lord that is promised here, that they're told to look for with the coming of Elijah, it arrives with Jesus. But the New Testament shows the day of the Lord, it's not quite as simple as, uh, as Malachi makes it sound. So Malachi, if you like, the day of the Lord, it's like we're seeing it from a long, long way away. And then the New Testament zooms in and you see, oh, the day of the Lord's actually quite a big thing. It, it begins with the birth of Jesus, but it also includes all of his life and his death and his resurrection, his return to heaven. And it doesn't finish until he returns to earth at the end of human history. And so Paul preaches in Athens in Acts 17, and he says, look, the sign for us now that God will judge is not look for the coming of Elijah, but the resurrection of Jesus, because that is the beginning of God's judgment that Malachi points forward. So Malachi says, when Elijah comes, the day of the Lord is here. The New Testament shows the day of the Lord begins with Jesus coming and ends with Jesus' return. And right in the middle of it is Jesus' resurrection. And as God judges Jesus as worthy and righteous and acceptable and as the king of the universe, that judgment that God makes in the resurrection of Jesus is the promise to you and me, God will judge. You got lost in some of the what happens when in the day. The resurrection of Jesus tells you God will judge. That's what it means. That's when God will make a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. That's when we see there will be a judgment. And so as we await for the day of the Lord, Malachi's command translated into our language is trust in Jesus and look to his resurrection. Two particular ways for us to do that in practice. Firstly, Christians don't envy those who are getting away with it. It always seems like there are some who are gaming the system. Just enough trust in Jesus to be eternally safe, but then living an utterly worldly life, indulging the same desires as everybody else. Enjoying sin rather than fighting it. And the, the truth is that sometimes we feel like they're winning. They seem to have all the eternal hope and none of the costly sacrifice. But the thing is, we don't see the end of the story. We don't see where you end up if you walk down that path. I think of, to be honest, I think of one or two who were here years ago, a decade or two ago, seemed to be getting away with living really sinful lives without actually losing their faith in Jesus. And people, other people struggled because it felt like they were kind of winning. They were having all the things you're not supposed to be able to have, both trust in Jesus and lots of other stuff, worldly stuff, sinful stuff. But a decade or two down the line, and they're nowhere spiritually, far from God and in desperate danger. Don't envy people who seem to be getting away with it. Pity them. Don't wish you could indulge those same sins and get away with it. Fear the harm those sins do to you. 
Secondly, don't allow the niggle or the grumble to turn you away from paradise. Now, not not everybody is questioning whether it's worth it. Some are counting the cost involved in following Jesus and doing so cheerfully and willingly. But all of us need to be reminded that it is worth it. Whether we've been following Jesus uh, for decades or whether tonight's the very first time we ever heard anything about the Christian message, we need to know it's worth it if I follow this Jesus. Because otherwise we will give up or we'll never put our trust in him in the first place. And waiting for the day of the Lord, waiting for Jesus' return is a bit like this. If you've ever been on a beach holiday in southern Europe, you'll know that there are certain northern European nations, let's leave it at that, who, who are known for hogging sun lounges. Not that I would make that accusation, and I'm not going to name the nations. So if you want to get a sun lounger, you have to get up first thing, before breakfast and leg it down to get your towel and then sit there shivering, seems like eons, waiting for the sun to reach you. And what usually happens is you can see the sun sort of approaching over the bay as it rises over the cliff. You can see the sunshine, but you you can't feel it. You know the sun is going to be blisteringly southern Europeanly warm, but you are shivering cold. You know the sun is coming but you feel none of its benefits at this point. And sometimes that is our experience as followers of Jesus. We know the day of the Lord has come. Jesus has come to earth. He has died. He has risen. We know that God has proved he will act to end injustice and to bring eternal life to his people. We know that we're forgiven our sins, but we just We just don't yet feel the warmth of that sun. We know the day of the Lord is inching nearer every day. But we don't yet feel the healing and the richness and the blessings it brings. And Malachi is a wonderful reminder that if you trust in Jesus, this life is not as good as it gets, which is a good thing to know. Life in God's eternal paradise kingdom will be better than the best day here. Think of the worst day you've ever experienced as an adult in London, you know, February commuting with a tube strike when it's raining but warm enough that you're just horribly sweaty on the bus and, and you forgot to do something at work and, and the boiler broke so you had a cold shower. That horrible worst day. Now think of the very best day you've ever had on holiday. The gap between the worst day you've ever experienced in this life and the best day you experience in this life is nothing compared with the gap between the best day in this life and a very average, ordinary day in the new creation. One day soon, the Son of Righteousness will rise on earth again. And as the rays of his glory hit us, we will be healed. We will be transformed. We will be glorified. We're not there yet, and there is much that is hard about this life. And to be perfectly honest, sometimes following Jesus makes this life harder. So God calls us, don't give up. That's going to happen. We need the support of each other. Keep speaking truth, not just to yourself, but to each other. Keep praying, not just for yourself, but for and with each other. The day of the Lord has come in Jesus.
and the day of the Lord will be completed soon when he returns. In the meantime, hold on in trust and obedience because God will reward and it will be worth it. Let's pray. Our Father God, whether um, we are trusting you and we enjoy living for you or whether we are struggling with feelings that it's just not worth it, we pray that you would help us to see again tonight through Malachi that you will, you will reward your people. You will make a distinction and it will be worth it. So help us to hold on, to cling to you in trust and to look forward to that glorious day when Jesus returns. In his name we pray. Amen.